0: This is episode 22 of the Inner Game of Aging podcast. Welcome to the Inner Game of Aging podcast, helping you to discover how to be older without growing old. And here's your host, turning this whole idea of aging upside down, Lee Mollott. I'm so happy to be able to bring you this podcast this week. And I must ask your forgiveness. It's been a couple of weeks since I've been able to release a podcast. Between my last release and now, I have suffered a stroke. Yes, you heard correctly. Lee Mawat, that picture of health, has suffered a stroke. And this episode will tell you all about that journey. I am known for my fitness and, to a lesser degree, my healthful habits, and I encourage others to explore my approaches to see if there's any benefit there for them. So when I end up in the hospital due to a stroke, I expect me and a lot of other people to be asking questions about what went wrong. You will find those answers in this podcast episode. Does this disturb, interrupt, or in some way change the grow older and not old message that the inner game of aging promotes? Not at all, as you will see listening to this entire episode. Since my events, I have spent many hours reading and learning about strokes. I have read the heartbreaking stories of stroke victims that are less than one year old Can you imagine what it might feel like to care for your one-year-old son who may not even be potty trained yet after he has suffered a stroke? If you have a brain and capillaries that feed blood to that brain, you can decide if this describes you or not, then you are eligible for a stroke. Studies in neurology journals have confirmed that the incidence of strokes are occurring in younger and younger ages. Although it is most certainly true that strokes tend to occur in older people much more than the young, they are essentially an age independent event. Most strokes are preventable and that is the message that the inner game of aging wants to spread. Using the tools of lifestyle, habit and attitude to minimize the risk of stroke is what we are here to do. That challenge remains unchanged, indeed perhaps even enhanced by my recent events. After listening to this episode, I believe you will agree. If you need to repeat portions of this episode, the show notes page timestamps will help you do exactly that. There you will find a list of topics and questions that have been explored during this episode, along with their timestamps for where they occur in this episode audio file. And you can find the show notes page at the usual place. The URL for the show notes page is innergameofaging.com forward slash IGA22. This is an important episode with life-saving information in it. You are strongly encouraged to share this episode with all around you that could use this information. Give this episode to your loved ones. Share it on your social media channels. Embed this episode on your website using the embed codes on the show notes page found in the listen, share and subscribe box on each and every show notes page. Tell your family and friends to consume this information because it could save their life. The first question I want to answer is why I consider myself so blessed to have had this stroke There are three primary reasons for my feeling of being blessed from this stroke. The first one, of course, is that it was a mild stroke. If I were to rate strokes based on the damage they do from 1 being the mildest and 10 being the most devastating, my stroke was a 1. Since this event, I have been doing a lot of reading from other stroke survivors. Strokes change a person's life forever and some of the stories I have been reading were quite heartbreaking to me. When thinking of all the things that could have been damaged during this event, I am so thankful to have had such a mild stroke, however it is a warning sign as you will understand later on in this podcast episode. The second reason why I consider myself blessed is because I have found vital and valuable information about a potentially dangerous vascular condition I have called carotid artery stenosis, which I will explain in detail during the course of this podcast and discussion. This turns out to be extremely valuable information that I really needed to know about if I intend to die young at a very old age. And the last reason why I feel so blessed is because there is some important information to share from this experience. Some of this information could save a life, and I feel blessed with the opportunity to share this information with you or anyone who needs it. So let's begin to unfold this story. Settled at my desk for the evening To work on a presentation That I had to give in a week But something felt different The computer mouse That I held in my left hand Started to feel very funny It started to slowly Melt away I knew it wasn't actually Melting away But it certainly felt like it As I held it in my left hand Upon closer examination It wasn't melting as I said before Rather, my hand was slowly becoming numb and guiding that mouse became a lot more difficult. I continued to work through this, trying to ignore the difficulty as best as I could. But when it took me over 10 minutes to enter a password that I had been using almost every day for the past four years, I knew something was wrong. I watched my thoughts move about in my head. Could this be a stroke? It can't be a stroke, I thought. I decided to call it a night and to check this thing out in the morning. That was my first bad decision. When I awoke in the morning, that left hand wasn't feeling much better. And that feeling started to spread to my forearm as well. In exploring the state of things in the morning, I discovered that I could not comfortably flap my left hand. While on my left hand, there was a muscular tension in the fingers that would not let them move about freely as I shook my hands. Upon seeing this, that is when I really got scared. There was no denying it anymore. I was having a stroke. My unfortunate decision to go to bed and call it a night rather than go to the hospital now became apparent to me. And this is the first key point I want to bring to your attention. As you may understand in a few minutes, it is vitally important that you identify a stroke as soon as you can and head to the hospital immediately. It turns out that if you can get yourself into an emergency room before a three-hour window has passed, they can administer a drug that can open up most clots and restore blood flow to the brain, thus minimizing damage. This drug, though, has higher and higher risks as you move beyond that three hour window. Both heart attacks and strokes come on at various rates. When a heart attack comes on suddenly, there is no doubt that you are having one and you can take immediate action in seeking help. However, when either a stroke or heart attack comes on gradually, which is more likely the case for women, we must get through a Period of denial first Before we begin to seek help In my case That period of denial Was a little bit more than a day I want to implore you To please understand And know the signs of a stroke If you suspect That you are having a stroke Act immediately If you or someone with you Is showing the signs That is slurred speech a numbness in the arms or legs, or a general confusion, act fast. Brain cells die off fast once the blood supply has been interrupted to them. My decision to head to bed instead of to the hospital was not a wise one. So, on Thursday, December 29th, 2016, I asked my wife to take me to the hospital. I told her that I suspected I was having a stroke. This caused much alarm, especially as she watched me have difficulty putting on my jacket. With each passing minute, my suspicion of a stroke was growing stronger and stronger. My fear was increasing. The images I had in my head about the damage that a stroke can cause in one's life were running through like a streamed movie. During the 15-minute drive to the hospital, I was mentally preparing myself to be received by the emergency room. Emergency medical technicians seem to have a habit of asking you these asinine questions that are used to gauge your level of awareness. Things like... What day is it? Or what did you have for breakfast this morning? Or even how many children do you have? These are supposed to measure your awareness of what's happening around you. I could feel my thoughts becoming more and more confused, but I didn't want to be stumped by these questions. It made me feel so stupid whenever it happened that way. So on the drive to the hospital, I kept saying to myself, today is Thursday, today is Thursday, today is Thursday. I wanted to memorize that answer because, again, I just felt so stupid when I could not answer these obvious questions. We arrived at the hospital emergency room and told the attendant there the symptoms I was feeling. He showed a bit of concern as he asked us to take a seat, that we would be the next one called. And indeed, to my surprise, we were actually the next one called. This had never happened to me in an emergency room. I'm accustomed to these hour-long waits, or even sometimes even longer, before anyone sees us. As I mentioned before earlier in this episode, the reason we had essentially no wait at all was very pragmatic, and important. If your stroke is less than three hours old, that is to say you've been experiencing symptoms for less than three hours, and if your stroke is an ischemic stroke due to a blockage or clot someplace, they can administer a rather strong drug called TPA, which effectively eliminates any clots in the circulatory plumbing. This returns blood flow to the brain and minimizes the damage that can be caused by dying brain cells. When you go to the hospital for a stroke, the hospital has four primary objectives in caring for you. The first objective is to make sure that the patient's condition is actually caused by a stroke and not by some other medical problem. To do that, They will take an MRI image of your brain as soon as they can. In my case, I was in an MRI machine within the hour I made it to ER. They had my results within minutes after the scans were taken. From looking at the scans, my stroke was identified as an ischemic stroke. As I will discuss in detail up ahead, there are basically two types of strokes. The more common is the ischemic stroke. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. This occurs when a blood vessel or capillary has been blocked. However, the more dangerous type of stroke is the hemorrhagic stroke. That's even more difficult to pronounce. This is when a blood vessel or capillary has been actually ruptured, allowing blood to leak into the brain. So, the scanned images have verified that I have had a stroke. After meeting their first objective and verifying that indeed I had had a stroke, they move on to their second objective, that is to determine the type and location of the stroke and just how serious it is. This is important for treatment and for prescribing rehabilitation paths up ahead. After carefully exploring the hospital scans, they verified and classified my stroke event. I will go into more detail about the type and nature of the stroke further in this episode because it is important in charting a path forward that will prevent this from ever happening again. With the first two objectives out of the way, the third objective of the hospital in caring for a stroke victim is actually to prevent another stroke from occurring. It is unfortunately very common for strokes to occur in succession of each other. So hospitals see many cases where another stroke occurs within days of the stroke that brought the patient into the hospital initially. This was a bit scary for me. So it was important to monitor the patient, me, throughout the hospital visit, and boy did they monitor me. That first night in the hospital, I was kept awake the entire night by some damn policy that demanded they take my vitals and check for evidence of another stroke, every two hours for the first 24 hours. If rest was what I needed, I was not getting it there. The only thing that made this more tolerable was the angel-faced nurse in charge of waking me up at these intervals. The fourth and last objective of a hospital's acute care for stroke victim patients is to evaluate the damage that has been caused by the stroke. This occurs during your hospital stay when you are stable enough for the challenges of these kinds of assessments. For me, it happened on the second day of my visit. I made some pretty interesting discoveries about my newfound limitations that I'd like to describe in detail in a later section of this episode. As I mentioned before, We only had a few minutes wait in the emergency room before I was sent off to MRI imaging. I was returned to the exam room to chat with Dr. Hudson. He was a strong, stern-looking man who still managed to exude an air of grace and friendliness. We said nothing for the first few minutes as he studied my face for cues and messages and I studied his for the same. And then he asked me, do you know where you are? Of course I do, you idiot. I thought that with my inner voice, I would never be so disrespectful with my outer voice. I think I said something like, I'm in the same place where you are, of course. He smiled and he asked me, do you know why you are here? And then it hit me. These are the questions that are used to embarrass and humiliate me, which is usually the first step of any hospital procedure. But I was prepared this time. I recall remembering all the answers on the drive to the hospital. Now, if I can just remember what those answers were, I could score 100 on this test. But the next question caught me. It didn't seem fair at all. I arrived at the hospital on December 29th, 2016. This is the end of the year with only two days remaining in it. I don't know about you, but it usually takes me a month or so to recognize and assimilate in my mind that we've moved off into a new year. I am usually writing the previous year in date fields well into February of the next year. So I was completely confused by his next question. He asked, what year is this, Lee? I thought to myself, these questions are stacked against me. How am I supposed to know what year it is when everything's changing around me? But he doesn't stop there. As we all know, our country has just finished a rather tumultuous and sometimes upsetting election cycle. The elections are now over and we are in the middle of political change with people moving in and administrations moving out and flux all over the place. So when he asked me, who is our president? I felt stumped. Is it him or is it him or was it her or was it me? My thoughts were now just a jumble. It didn't look like I was going to pass this test. Whatever answer I gave to that question, it didn't look like the right one, judging from his expressions. So I just decided to remind him that it was Thursday, just in case that could alter the outcome in some way. Next comes the physical checks to get a broad assessment of the current state of damage regarding the stroke. And here is where we can all learn a few things. Remember these checks in case someone around you may be having a stroke. You can execute them in the same way the hospital did for me to assess the damage. First, the doctor held out three fingers and asked me to squeeze them hard. What they are looking for here is a symmetry of strength. Is one hand squeezed significantly weaker than the other hand squeeze? By this point, I was having trouble making a tight fist with my left hand, but I gave it what I could. But the lack of symmetry between the two hands was apparent even to me. Next, they ask you to make a wide smile. You grin from ear to ear. What they are looking for is the symmetry of your smile. Does one side of the smile droop more than the other? This is a classic indication of a stroke. They also ask you to puff out your cheeks like a balloon. I'm not exactly sure what they're looking for when they ask you to do this, but I was getting tired of making stupid faces at them and getting a little bit irritated. After that, they do a series of joint flexes to again test the symmetry of your strength. And they really know how to get into the ego of a guy, at least for me. This masculine-looking doctor puts his hands right in front of my face, flat out, and says, hand to hand, please. I comply. Then he says, now push. I may have been having a stroke, but this guy was getting the better of me inside. If he wanted strength, I was going to give him strength. After all, that's what I'm known for. But much to my surprise, he appeared unfazed by my strength demonstrations. If you look on the web for the signs of a stroke, you will run across symptoms that may or may not reflect what is actually happening to you. In the case of a stroke, with a gradual onset like mine was, this vagueness of symptoms may increase that period of denial I referred to earlier, costing you precious time, time that you simply cannot afford to waste. So I want to tell you how I experienced each of the symptoms that you would typically run across in doing a search for the signs of a stroke. The first symptom that comes up in your search results is Weakness or numbness of the face, arms, or legs on one side of the body. Looking back, I certainly had this, but it was hard to tell at the time. The feeling wasn't as distinct as I imagined it would be, and it was kind of localized to my left hand. So I was in doubt if that was the symptom that I was feeling or not. Another symptom that your search results may point you to is loss of vision or dimming like a curtain falling over one or both eyes. I don't recall anything like that happening to me. So if I was looking for that to determine if I was having a stroke, I would have delayed even longer. Yet another symptom that you would run across in your search results by looking for signs of a stroke is Loss of speech, difficulty talking or understanding what others are saying. I'm not sure if I had this at all. I don't recall anything different. My wife sounded just as crazy to me as she always does. There was no difference on that front. And as far as I can tell, I made just as much sense to me as I normally do. Moving on in our search results symptom list is listed... Sudden, severe headache with no known cause. Here again, I was kind of deficient. I realized only about mm, the next day that I had been carrying around a slight headache that I had barely even noticed. It was there, but it hadn't caught my attention at all. If I was looking for this as a sign for a stroke, again, I would have delayed. And the last symptom in your search results that I wanted to mention is loss of balance or unstable walking, usually combined with other symptoms. Walking on my feet was never a problem throughout this entire ordeal. The point I'm trying to make here is not that these are not signs of you might be having a stroke. Of course they are. But how these symptoms actually manifest in you could cause some doubt as to whether you are experiencing them or not. That doubt will increase your time that you need to go seek help. One of the things you will run across in your Google search results is the acronym FAST. F-A-S-T. These letters represent the quick checks you can make on a person to determine if they are in a stroke situation. F is for face. You ask the person to smile puff out his cheeks, stick out his tongue, and wiggle his tongue side to side. If all the action is occurring on one side of the face and not the other, you may be looking at a stroke victim that needs help FAST. The A of the acronym FAST stands for ARMS. Ask the person to raise both arms. Does one arm drift downward? Is he able to hold it out steadily? If there is much difference between the two arms, again, you may be looking at a stroke victim. The S in this FAST acronym is for speech. Ask the person to repeat a simple sentence. Does he slur or otherwise sound anomalous in any way? Is his words being formed clearly? Does he sound like he has clear thinking? The T of this acronym stands for time. If you see any of these symptoms in the face, arms, or speech of this individual, then time is of the essence. Get this person to a hospital as fast as you can. So, what exactly is a stroke and what causes them? We have been using the term so far without defining it. What exactly is a stroke? As soon as I was released from the hospital, I started to research this question in detail. And I learned some pretty interesting stuff. A stroke is a brain event that causes brain cells to die. And there are two basic things types of strokes, depending on how you look at them. The first type of stroke is called the ischemic stroke. This is the sort of stroke that I had. It occurs when a blood vessel carrying blood to the brain is blocked by a blood clot. The clot prevents oxygenated blood that the brain cells need to survive from reaching the brain. Ischemic strokes are definitely more common They occur about 85% of the time. When they occur, brain cells quickly die off as they are starved from the much-needed blood. However, the more dangerous stroke is the hemorrhagic stroke, where a blood vessel ruptures and bleeds into the brain. Here again, brain cells cannot survive under these conditions. The hemorrhagic stroke is the more dangerous of the two. It's easy for me to remember the difference between the two because hemorrhagic and hemorrhaging remind me of the same thing. The hemorrhagic stroke will often result in death. There is a third type of stroke which has a slightly different classification. It is called the transient ischemic attack or TIA for short. These are what I have been calling silent strokes. They are called silent strokes because their symptoms typically last less than a day. You may not even feel them. The only way to know if you've ever had one of these silent strokes is to get a brain scan or MRI. These types of strokes generally do not cause permanent damage and can be easily brushed off as something else. But they are a serious warning sign that an upcoming stroke event may be in your future. If you have the opportunity to get a brain scan, take it. In my case, the scans showed that the blockage that brought me to the hospital was not the first. Apparently, I have had a few silent strokes before this time. This both surprised and scared me. My wife and I looked at each other. How could we tell that this had been going on? She herself could be experiencing such things without her ever knowing about it. Any of you could be experiencing these things and you may never know it, yet the occurrence of these mini-strokes are an important warning sign that should cause you to act and to step up preventative measures. Perhaps it is time for preventative screenings using MRIs for those people with high risk for stroke. During all of my research, I found out a lot of interesting facts, stats, and miscellaneous tidbits about strokes. Here are a few. For example, African Americans have almost twice the risk of having their first stroke compared to the rest of the population. But, as one of my close friends always cautions me, when hearing things like this, we must be wary of the difference between cause and correlation. This statistical fact, could just mean that being African American in this country involves lifestyles, habits, and environments that yield higher instances of stroke. It does not immediately suggest that being black means you have a stroke. Another fact borne out by statistics, if you have a brain and capillaries that feed blood to that brain, you can get a stroke regardless of age. As I mentioned earlier, I've seen one-year-olds be victims of stroke. These are not outliers on a statistical bell curve. The instances of stroke is occurring in younger and younger ages. And here goes an interesting curious fact. The brain uses more than 20% of the body's overall energy usage. For an organ that weighs only 3 pounds to consume over 20% of my energy, hmm, maybe thinking harder could be a form of weight control? And here goes a a statistic that scared me. Recurrent stroke is frequent. About 25% of people who recover from their first stroke will have another stroke within 5 years. This one really scared me. To me, this means that... If I don't adjust something, another stroke would be in my future. Having your first stroke predisposes you to having a second one. This is why it is so important to find out why I, Lee, had this stroke. While I was doing my research on strokes, my wife was doing her research as well. As you can imagine. She was kind of concerned about how a stroke might affect one's behavior, but it still surprised me when she brought me the following two statements from a medical journal. And I will read these two statements to you here now. A stroke can impair your thinking and reasoning abilities. It can lead to poor judgment and cause memory problems. It could also cause behavioral changes. You may not you may have been outgoing once but are now withdrawn or vice versa. That was the first statement she brought to me. The second statement was the following You might also have fewer inhibitions post stroke and as a result act recklessly. After reading these two statements, she turned and looked at me and said According to what I am reading, you've had a stroke for a very long time. I just looked, sneered, and went back to work. The last stroke fact that I'd like to bring to your attention is about silent strokes. Strokes that we don't know we have. They're called transient ischemic attacks. These are silent strokes because they have no symptoms beyond a transitory dizziness or... These are kind of scary for me. As The more I learned about strokes, the more these became very scary. One, these silent strokes, as we call them, have the same cause as major strokes. They're coming from the same place, the same reason. But the thing that scares me most about them is because their symptoms are so fleeting, most of us who have them don't know that we've had them. And having them predisposes us to a major stroke event up ahead. Unfortunately, the only way to know that you've had these things, these silent strokes, is by getting a brain scan. And that's not something we do every day. In my brain scan, there was evidence of previous occurrence of these silent strokes. So now it's time to explain the details of my particular stroke. Remember that I am supposed to be a model of what fitness and health is all about for the older person. Those who know me, either personally or through Facebook, have seen my handstand pictures all around the country. So why didn't my health practices prevent this stroke? What do I have to do moving forward to prevent another occurrence? What further adjustments do I have to make in my life in order to die young at a very old age? I pondered all of this during that first night in the hospital where they would wake me every two hours. I asked how do I portray myself as a picture of health when I'm lying in this bed unable to properly use my left hand. And these sort of thoughts were interspersed with very real fear about the extent of damage that I had suffered and its effect on my life moving forward. I've had to recover from many things. Indeed, my wife says that I have this recovery thing down to a routine. But recovering from a brain attack, this was out of my league. I had no experience to understand how to do that. But the first job was to understand as much detail as I could about how this stroke happened. And the shortest answer I can give you to that is carotid stenosis. Now, I'm going to have to explain that term since it's at the heart of the cause of my stroke. I wanted to understand this very carefully, and I'd like you to understand it as well. Since I am not sure that I am pronouncing it properly, allow me to spell that for you. Again, carotid stenosis spelled C-A-R-O-T-I-D stenosis S-T-E-N-O-S-I-S. It was the ultrasound report of my carotid artery that first showed the problem related to my stroke. I have included this report on my show notes page for this episode. And again, you can access the show notes page at innergameofaging.com forward slash IGA22. The carotid arteries are a pair of major blood vessels that supply blood to the brain, face, eyes, and neck. They run from the heart to each side of the neck, left and right. Carotid stenosis is the condition where these vessels start to narrow due to a plaque buildup. The scan of these arteries indicate that blood flow through them was a little bit more than 50% of what it should be. I am told that many people walk around with much higher percentages of restriction than that. The doctor says he has seen people with 75% restricted blood flow and still remain asymptomatic. But for me, 50% was all it took for some small clot or blood particle to block the flow of blood that, and have this stroke occur. So now I have to ask the question, plaque buildup, Lee? I thought I was healthy. To answer this question, I feel I have to remind both me and those who follow me that being fit and being healthy are two different things. Health and fitness really go hand in hand, but they are not quite the same thing. Health describes the state of an entire body and all of its systems. Is the body functioning the way it ought to? Are there irregularities within one or more systems that do not allow for full, efficient functioning? Fitness also describes the state of the body, but focuses more specifically on the nervous system, the muscular system, and the skeletal system. Are the systems functioning properly? Are they working properly together? To be fit is to have an efficient heart muscle, one that recovers quickly after being taxed. It is also to have proper movement patterns so that when you execute a movement, the correct muscles are activated and injury is averted. Fitness also takes into consideration the skeletal system. Are the joints moving the way they should? How is your posture? We create fitness by training muscles to work in the correct patterns, by focusing on maintaining correct posture during movement, and by placing demands upon muscles so that they grow stronger and more efficient. The effort we put toward fitness pays off by creating a greater state of overall health. But still, fitness and health are not the same thing. Being fit does not preclude you from having certain health issues. In my case, carotid stenosis. There are about 9 or 10 factors that contribute to your risk of having carotid stenosis. I will touch upon the ones that touch upon my life. The first one is cholesterol and triglyceride levels. Cholesterol is a waxy-like substance that is found in all the cells of the body. Your body needs cholesterol to make your hormones like testosterone, vitamin D, and substances that help to digest your food. Your body makes all the cholesterol it needs. Cholesterol is carried throughout the bloodstream by lipoproteins, and there are two types of lipoproteins, the low-density proteins, LDL, And the high-density lipoproteins, HDL, I use that first letter, H and L, to remind me of which one is the good one and which one is the bad one. H stands for healthy, L stands for lousy. So the LDL levels is what we really want to reduce. The HDL levels, which is the good kind, we really want to increase. It is the LDL lipoprotein cholesterol that contributes to the buildup in the arteries. The HDL cholesterol is responsible for bringing the surplus cholesterol back to the liver where it is disposed of. Raising your HDL level is a good thing. The way people process cholesterol differs though. Some people appear to be more vulnerable to cholesterol-rich diets And research is beginning to show that your genetic makeup is the primary driving force behind cholesterol levels. Here's what caught my attention. The body creates cholesterols in amounts much larger than what you could ever eat. I am told that about 85% of the cholesterol in the circulation is manufactured by the body in the liver. But researchers are discovering there's a large genetic component ...to how each of us uses our cholesterol. Hmm, I think it may be time to check in with my twin brother. After all, I don't want him to suffer the same fate. Now listen closely to this next part, because this is where I believe I made my mistake. Knowing that the body needs cholesterol in order to repair itself... ...and knowing that my body needs a lot of repair due to all the working out that I do... I took a somewhat nonchalant Cavalier attitude about my cholesterol levels. I get my blood checked at least once every 3 months. At my last check, my LDL level was 183 milligrams per deciliter. This is high. The reason I didn't pay attention to this as I needed to was because of a false assumption I was making that now needs to be corrected. For some reason, way back in my education about the body, I understood that inflammation was needed for cholesterol to do its damage. The inflammation in my body has always been measured to be extremely low. I have some of the lowest C-reactive protein results around. The C-reactive protein test that you take is an indication of the inflammation of your body. My numbers were always extremely low, indicating I had little inflammation in my body, so I did not worry about cholesterol as much as I should have. But as I said, each of us uses cholesterol differently. So moving forward, I have to pay attention to these cholesterol levels. Of course, the fastest way to reduce LDL cholesterol is by taking statins. This works for most people, but has certain side effects, one of which relates to muscle building, something that I have been typically concerned about. Statins also deplete our levels of CoQ10. This is an enzyme that our cells need for proper functioning. Those people taking statins are often advised to also take a CoQ10 supplement So if I'm to start taking statins, I will also take CoQ10. Another factor that could point me in the direction of having another stroke is stress. A quick look at media reports related to stress shows that long-term stress has been implicated in so many of our chronic ailments. But stress is a highly individualistic experience. What stresses me may not stress you at all. So it is best to look at stress in terms of how the body responds to it rather than what causes it since that is so individualistic. Although the things we find stressful vary from person to person, the response our body gives to whatever we perceive as stressful is much more uniform. Our cortisol levels rise. Cortisol prepares the body for a fight or flight response. It does this by raising the blood pressure to supply more blood to the larger muscles and flooding the body with glucose which supplies immediate energy to those large muscles it also inhibits insulin production to try to prevent the glucose that came in from being stored again since the energy that that is represented by that glucose is needed now and not later so we can see that a consistent level of stress leaves us exposed to high levels of glucose in our blood glucose floating around the blood doesn't that sound like diabetes And recent research has proven the association between cortisol and obesity, as well as cortisol and diabetes. Chronically elevated cortisol levels have been implicated in a whole host of health difficulties. And once we understand how it prepares your body for the impending threat or challenge, we can understand why our stress levels stand between us and our health. As I mentioned, elevated cortisol increases the sugar in our blood, contributing to diabetes, weight gain, and obesity. It also increases our craving for sugar in order to properly fuel the fight-or-flight response. Yes, uninvited stress can be a stumbling block in our quest for health, but as I read through all the symptoms that are possible from stress, I manifest very few of them in my life. My immune system appears to be strong. My digestion appears fine with little to no stomach issues at all, but still perhaps it is time to step up my stress management practices. You may be curious as to why I am mentioning my stress and especially in relation to the stroke. After all, what do I have to be stressed about? I am outside of the rat race called corporate America, and in the warmer weather, I travel about as my resources allow me to, and this provides a lot of stress relief. So what do I have to be stressed about? Well, I won't, I won't reveal all that in this episode since I am planning to do an entire episode on stress management in the near future. At that time, I will discuss the two major stresses that I have in my life. For the most part, modern day stress comes from our perceptions rather than our realities. By and large, it is self-created. That fact gives us many options and opportunities to successfully manage stress levels. And as I said before, I will be doing an entire episode on stress management since controlling stress is a vital element of our health. But... After much research and almost as much self-reflection, I have concluded that my stress management practices need some adjustment to prevent future occurrences of my recent medical adventure. But I will be discussing all of this at length in an upcoming podcast episode. Please look forward to it. For now, my advice would be to improve your sleep, improve your relationships, increase your physical movement, and adopt positive attitudes when looking at your life. As I mentioned earlier, one of the responsibilities of acute hospital care for strokes is to determine the amount and areas of damage that the stroke has caused. This is needed because the hospital has to prescribe rehabilitation paths for the patient moving forward. The damage from a stroke can be rather broad sweeping and depends entirely on which areas of the brain have been affected by the stroke. Common damages include difficulty swallowing, lack of energy, difficulty picking up the front part of your foot which causes you to drag your toes along the ground as you walk. There's also muscle weakness or perhaps paralysis due to problems in the messages between your muscles and your brain. There's also spasticity of the arms and legs. Of those symptoms listed, the only one I experienced was a little bit of spasticity in my pinky finger and some general confusion in finger coordination. I couldn't figure out what to do with my fingers on my left hand. Tying knots became impossible. But a complete evaluation of whatever damage had occurred started for me on my second day in the hospital. Lying in bed eating a rather nice lunch, a friendly looking guy knocks on my hospital room door telling me he is a speech pathologist, here to evaluate any visual deficiencies caused by the stroke. Did I hear that correctly? I couldn't tell. A speech pathologist wants to evaluate my visual deficiencies. Nonetheless, we proceed. He hands me a rather large picture and asks me to call out every item I see in that picture. As I call out each item, he checks it off on a list on a pad that he is holding. There is a broom, a shovel, a boy, a sink, a whole host of items. I mention all that I see and he checks off each one on his list. After about five minutes, we stop a bit. He shows me the list of all the items I have mentioned Asked me to make notice of something. He shows me the picture from which I have mentioned the items from. All the items I have mentioned were on the right-hand side of the picture. The items that appeared on the left side of the picture I did not mention at all. He calls this a left-side deficit. Although I was seeing these items f- physically, but my mind wasn't registering the fact that I was seeing them. This felt a bit serious to me. I asked him, would I be able to drive with this thing? And he said, I don't think so. It's not safe for you to drive with a left side deficit. I became a bit concerned. How do I get rid of this? What's the time frame? What's the process of getting rid of this? Can I get rid of this? He says, neuroplasticity is your friend. You can exercise this away through repetition and mindfulness. This is something that I can do. If it takes practice for me to eliminate my limitations, I can do that. So I asked him, how do I practice in ways that will eliminate this left side deficit? He says, simply be mindful of your left side, of whatever you see on the left side of you. As long as you are mindful that it is there, your brain will again form the patterns that help you see the things on your left side. That felt... Fine to me because, well, I practice very well if I know what I'm practicing for. But I got an idea after he left the room as to how I can ex- make exercising for this a lot more fun. I had to temporarily suspend all the lessons I had taught myself earlier as a younger man as to how to not look at a woman's chest as we talked. I needed to exercise this left side deficit out of existence, so I made sure that every nurse who came her into my room had bumps on both the left and right side of her chest. I believe my exercising worked because today, three weeks after I've left the hospital, I'm driving again. So now I would like to talk about leaving the hospital and my recovery at home. If you know stroke survivors or you are a caretaker to a stroke survivor, this next section could be important for you. When you leave the hospital after having a stroke, depending on the damages, they will give you a path to move forward in your recovery. You and your caretaker, for me, that was my wife, are given a complete set of instructions regarding medications, further medical attention, and the rehabilitation that is ahead for you. I must say that my hospital experience was excellent. At no point did I feel ignored or, have my, or did not have my questions answered. This is the same hospital, by the way, that worked on me for my accident I had in 2004. In both of these instances, I was very pleased with the care I had received. My final consultation with a doctor proved to be somewhat humorous. We reviewed the reasons that I had the stroke, that is, my stenosis in my carotid artery, and he referred me to more comprehensive stroke service centers in Boston. By that time, I was feeling a little bit better and was tempted to do a headstand of all things. I immediately became curious as to whether inversions such as headstands and handstands would be okay for me to do. I decided to ask. To help him understand my question, I got out my phone and turned to a few of the many pictures I have doing handstands and headstands around the country. I figured I would show him a few samples of these pictures to help him understand what I was questioning him about. The samples I selected was one picture of me doing a headstand on the edge of the Grand Canyon, and another where I am doing a headstand overlooking Niagara Falls. I tell him that I am concerned about being upside down now and wanted to see if these sort of things were okay. Then I show him the two pictures to give him an illustration of what I am talking about. He looks at the pictures and I can see his expressions change. With a somber expression on his face, he asks me, What makes you think that this is safe under any circumstances, stroke or not? He continues by saying, From the looks at all those pictures, I think you need to have your head examined. I said under my breath, I thought we just did all that. After this discussion, I gathered things from my hospital room and headed home to explore my new limitations. My left hand was still significantly compromised. It was frustrating simply trying to put on a glove. My first day home from the hospital, I didn't do much. I just wanted to feel what it felt like to be able to sleep without being woken every two hours. I tried to imagine what it would be like to live alone under these circumstances. My wife was instrumental in helping me to manage those first couple of days at home. I couldn't drive and I couldn't make sense of my hands enough to cook. But the real kicker for me was when I sat down at my desk to catch up on my emails. My left hand had no idea what I was doing. Using a keyboard proved to be damn difficult, producing much frustration and almost anger at times. It was as if each hand was controlled by two different brains. And I noticed the oddest thing. When I went to use my right hand, my thoughts were clear, at least clearer. But when I went to use my left hand, my thoughts were all muddled. I couldn't make sense of what I was supposed to be doing with this hand or what the mission was to begin with. And typing was a monumental challenge. You have no idea what it feels like to type at two different speeds with each hand. A word like pumpkin, which is typed only on the right hand, goes by in a flash. But in typing a word like zebra, I had to carefully contemplate in order to succeed at typing it. This was absolutely aggravating. I could feel elements of frustration creep throughout my fingers, hands, arms, legs, and my mind and my thought it was just debilitating trying to type this way. I also tried to write to see if I could recognize my signature. There was no way I could control my hand enough to produce anything intelligible on that paper. But I knew practice was my key to getting better, and I practiced almost day and night. I wanted to be back. I have samples of my handwriting on the show notes page for this episode. You can see what my handwriting looks like on day one, out of the hospital. I also have samples on the show page of my practice sessions for my handwriting. You can see it gradually get better as days go by and I practice more and more. I am a firm believer of practicing, and the role of practice in recovering from a stroke has been tremendous. Through practice, we can always get better at anything we want to get better at. My handwriting samples are just another good illustration of this. During this recovery and practice period, my wife made a rather astute observation, which touches upon one of the principles of the grow older and not old message of the inner game of aging. She noticed that much of the fuel that energized my constant and deliberate practice was the pride I take in my own image. I needed to see me whole again, and I worked desperately in that direction. Her mention of this struck me because I recall a similar motivation in healing from my my 2004 accident. I wondered, do high self-esteem people who take pride in their public image heal faster than those that do not? Is a healthy self-esteem one of the ingredients of a healthy life? I'd like to think that the answer is yes, but that is not a question I will entertain right now. My wife also noticed that my burning desire to complete this podcast episode and get this information out to all of you motivated a lot of my deliberate deliberate practice sessions. She would hear me curse away at the keyboard as I struggled with it, Any suggestions that I go easy or take it slow was usually met with a returning comment indicating the need to complete this podcast episode. In that sense, I want to thank all of you for being out there to receive this information. My typing is now at 90% of what it was, so it's not so frustrating to sit at the keyboard for a little while at least, and having a purpose that is to share this information with all of you, allowed me to challenge that frustration and navigate through it. Thank you. So, after three weeks from the hospital experience, I find myself more or less functional and feeling very blessed. Many of my friends have theorized that it is my level of fitness that has helped me to recover so fast. Certainly, that has not hurt. And I've always said that the reason I stay fit is because I never know when I'm going to be fighting for my life. But recovering from a stroke requires something more than fitness. And that something is embedded in each and every one of us, although we may manifest it differently. That something is called the human spirit. The human capacity to face a challenge must be exercised in the same manner we exercise our body. Just as trees need the wind to make them strong, I believe facing our challenges and resolving them will strengthen anyone's ability to recover from the inevitable disasters and losses that we all have to face. In other words, rather than fitness, I believe it is more attitude that has helped me to recover with such speed. It isn't what happens to us that makes us who we are. It's how we respond to what happens to us that makes us the people that we turn out to be. I certainly hope you enjoyed this episode. However, I more hope that you got value from it that could affect your life moving forward. The show notes page for this episode will contain extensive resources. I will put my brain scans there. You'll see pictures of my handwriting as it progressed from being unintelligible to fairly readable. You can see a small speech that I gave to a group in Nashua about the lighter side of having a stroke. And please, Leave me comments so I can understand how you've responded and how you've interacted with this particular episode. You may want to tell me your own story. The URL for the show notes page is innergameofaging.com forward slash IGA22. And while there, consider signing up to receive website updates. These subscribers receive special reports and extra information coming from the inner game of aging. If you'd like to follow through on my recovery, after all, it's not 100% yet, you'll be getting information through this mechanism, through the subscriber mechanism. If you want to be alerted to the new content on on the website, again, sign up. You'll always be notified of what's coming up ahead. If you want to help spread the message of growing older but not old and become a force for change in your circles of influence, then subscribe to the website. You'll receive newsletters that have information on how you can do exactly that. And you can always email me directly. Use the following email address, Lee at Inner Game of Aging, all one word, no spaces, Com, C-O-M So until next time Thanks for listening to the Inner Game of Aging podcast with Lee Watt Check out more content by going to the TheInnerGameOfAging.com That's the TheInnerGameOfAging No spaces dot .com Stay with us as we learn the many ways of being older without growing old